thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Now we come to consider the Word of the Lord. And I'm going to introduce this by testing some of your memories. Some of you remember ABC's Wide World of Sports. It's probably a minority, a small minority at that. But it was in the 60s and 70s that ABC put together stories that took its audience from the highest peak of success to the lowest valley of agony. Its creators took its viewers from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat and the points in between. The wide world of sports was compelling viewing. If you want to look it up on the internet, you can see it. Few stories in history, much less Bible histories, can rival King David's for the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Today I'm inviting you to join with me in a close-up look at David's life story in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel with the purpose of learning how to be a better child of God and especially to the men who are gathered here today who are fathers or aspire to be fathers that you can be a person who learns from the victories as well as the defeats that David experienced in his life. We'll start with the thrill of David's victories. David's victories are nothing short of amazing. When we first encounter David in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's a little shepherd boy. And he is the eighth of eight sons. The prophet Samuel has been told by God that a member of the household of Jesse of the town of Bethlehem is the one who is earmarked to become the successor to Saul, the king who was the first king of Israel, who was a royal mess, frankly, because of his refusal to trust in the Lord. So Samuel goes with great expectation to Bethlehem. He locates where Jesse lives. He tells Jesse why he's there. A hush must have fallen over the family. He was there, that is Jesse, with seven of his sons. And so Samuel said, let me know who these young men are by their place in the birth order. The first born was named Eliab. And when Samuel saw Eliab rise when his father told him to stand up so that the prophet could get a good view of himself, this is what ran through the mind of Samuel, who was a man of God par excellence. He said, in his mind, surely the Lord's anointed is before God here in the person of Eliab. And then the Spirit of God spoke to Samuel. He said, not Eliab. He asked who the second son was. The second son named Abinadab. It was not he. He said, 
What about the third son? The third son, Shema. It was not Shema. Then four more followed, and it was no, 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 coming from the Spirit of God into the mind of Samuel, who knew the voice of God. And he says, don't you have another son? And Jesse said, almost apologetically, yes, but he's just a shepherd boy. He's out tending the sheep. And what did Samuel say? He said, sin for him. And we'll all stand up until he gets back home. Now, hopefully he was not too far away from the domicile where they live. But when he came in, immediately the Spirit of God told Samuel, this man is the one. His initial and primary anointing as Israel's king happened that day to David. Oil was poured on his head as Samuel laid his hands on him and blessed him. And here's what the scripture says. I get chills just to think about it. In 1 Samuel 16, 12, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Here was a man in whom the spirit had not yet lived, but a man who was deemed the right man for the spirit of God to indwell. And at that moment, the Spirit of God came and indwelled him. And this is what the Scripture says. And he continued to indwell in him, implying that from that moment forward until the day of David's death, probably some 50 to 55 years later, the Spirit of the Lord was in him. This is a picture of the New Testament work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been with us, you've heard me talk about it. That when a person receives Jesus Christ... Obviously, Jesus does not fit his body down inside of that person's body. Otherwise, he would be isolated to that one person. So Jesus said, remember in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. And the advantage was that the Spirit of God was going to come and live in everyone's life who trusts in the Lord with a whole heart. That's good news, isn't it? And the Spirit of God will never leave you, the Bible says. This is, makes it different from the normal believer in God in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit usually only lived in one person at a time. Now let me back off here just a minute. Perhaps you know the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, what? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. We do not belong to ourselves. Once we come to know Jesus, the Spirit comes to indwell us. To whom do we belong? We belong to God the Father. Christ made it possible for you and me to be transferred from the domain of darkness, which is ruled by Satan himself. Every human being is born dead spiritually. And what God has ordained is for those who put their trust in Him alone, in the person in Jesus Christ, and what Christ has done for us, not what we could ever do in a thousand lives. I was talking to a man yesterday, and he was talking about his relationship to God. It was very much in passing. And if you think of this man, I'm not going to name him, but just pray for him. He said, after I asked, thanked him for something nice he did for me, he said, 
Don't thank me. I need every good work I can to get to heaven. That's the thinking of many people and probably the thinking of at least one person here today that at the end of your life, when you die and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You'll say, well, Lord, I think the good stuff I did outweighed the bad stuff. Sorry, you'll hear if you have that viewpoint. And it's a sad sorry because the Bible says you have to be perfect to go into heaven. And you say, what? Did I hear you correctly? Absolutely. You have to be perfect. Well, that eliminates everyone in the room. And it eliminates every human being who's ever lived or ever will live with the exception of Jesus Christ as being able to get into heaven because none of us is perfect. So enter Jesus who was God and was a human being and he made it possible by living a perfect life and then laying down his life for us and crucified for our sins, rejected by God the Father. Remember what he said from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he put an emphasis on the you because all the others of his followers had forsaken him. The closest people to him had. The good news is that when you trust Christ, in that instant, the Spirit of God comes to live in your heart. Never to leave you. Never to forsake you. And His presence is what is called a down payment by Paul and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he's writing the books of Ephesians and also the book of 2 Corinthians. David was one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the next victory we see, that was the biggest victory, that he would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which set the stage for everything else. His encounter with Goliath is probably the one that most of us think about when we think of him. Is that true? When you hear the name David, do you think immediately of Goliath? Goliath was from Gath. Gath was a city in Philistia. The Philistines were arch enemies. In fact, they were incredibly oppressive to Israel. The nemesis of Israel. But Goliath, count, count the height of this man. Nine feet and six inches tall. Now that's what I call a man. And he was an impressive man. He was impressive in the boldness that he envisioned for whomever saw him. He was a warrior of the highest rank. He was imposing in his appearance, but he was also intimidating in his speech. It reminds me of Jack and the Beanstalk. Did any of you remember that? That was one of my favorite fairy tales. What is it? How does it go? Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll have him with a loaf of bread. Am I the only one who knows that? I'm, I'm not surprised if I'm the only one because of my age in this group. But I, I, just would, I would just think about that giant and the beanstalk. I would have my mother read that to me over, and when I got able to read, I could read it. Well, this giant Goliath was much more intimidating. And by the time that David encountered him, there was a face-off that had been going for 40 days. The army of the Philistines were overlooking the valley of Elah, 
from the west. And from the east, the Israeli army was overlooking the battlefield. And what would happen is this giant Goliath would come out with his armor, his armor bearer, his weapons, and he would challenge the, the Israelis to send a warrior, a champion. He was the champion of Philistia. And quite frankly, he was probably the champion of the world with that kind of size and that kind of weaponry. But there was never a movement on the part of any Jewish army participant because all of them were frightened and I probably would have been for sure and many of you would have been frightened too in that situation and we would have just laid back but what they would do every day both sides the armies would come out and they would stand at the bottom of the mountain that they were lodging in and they would kind of yell things at each other but no action all talk and no action. I remember when I was in high school playing football, one of my teammates, his name was, last name was May, and May was a very good player. He was about 6'2 and weighed about 160, and he played defensive end, but he was meaner than a junkyard dog. In fact, in fact, that's what our coaches called him, yard dog. That was his nickname. And nobody could get around his end in practice. And one day, our coach, Coach Mason, said, Yard Dog, why don't you ever say anything? He said, talk's cheap, Coach. And it was, and it is, isn't it? We can talk a good game about being a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's all that our walk with God amounts to, is just talk. And we need to do a lot less talking about who we are, and this let our actions do the speaking for us. David was one who let his actions speak. He was not afraid of this giant. Why wasn't he afraid? Because listen to what he said to Goliath. When he finally got face to face with him, this is what he said to him. He said, you come in your own name. You have blasphemed the God of Israel. We come, notice he does not use his name only. He didn't say, I come. He said, we come in the name of the Lord. And the battle is the Lord's. And he will deliver you into our hands. The mark of a great leader, regardless of the field of leadership, and especially in the church of Jesus Christ, the mark of a great leader is that leader is not about himself or herself. The leader is one who is under marching orders and looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his or her faith, and follows Jesus in lockstep with others who know and love the Lord. You remember that Saul, who was the reigning king, he was as much a coward, if not more, than everybody else. He offered David his gear. That would be Saul's gear. He had a nice getup. In fact, if we had read earlier in the book of 1 Samuel 14, what we would discover, and this is wild, there were only two people in the entire army of Israel 
who had access to a sword. Saul the king and Jonathan his son. Only two. And so Saul gave his sword to David. He gave him his gear. And you may recall that Saul, when he was crowned king, he is described as being a whole head taller. In other words, there was no one male in Israel who could come when he stood side by side above the shoulders. The top of the head of the tallest guy would just be here. So he was somewhat of an imposing figure too. And you can only imagine, I'm sure, how awkward it would be for David. We don't know how tall he was. He was shorter, obviously, than Saul. How that would have been to him. And finally he says to the king, King Saul, with all due respect, this is not me. I've got to be myself. He didn't say that, but that's what he was really saying. He was saying, with God, anybody can be used to accomplish the impossible. That's what he was saying. And someone called him just a little smart aleck, you know, sort of upstart because he's in his late teens probably. David took his sling. He had five smooth stones. And one wonders why was he... anticipating a miss when he hurled the stone? I don't think so. He was fully confident. Remember, he'd used his sling and stones in it to kill bear and lion. He was a dead eye when it came to using that sling. There were four other giants in Gath where Goliath was from. And some people think it was the brothers of Goliath. So he was, just to be careful, he was saying, now, if the other four are here, and they likely were, and I do Goliath in, I'm ready for number two and number three and number four and number five. He was loaded not for bear, but for giants, right? But they didn't show up. In fact, with the death of Goliath, After David slung that stone and hit him right in the middle of the forehead, dropped dead right there. David runs over and he grabs the sword of Goliath. That would be quite a piece too. And he takes it and he decapitates him. And all of the Philistine army turns tail and runs. And then the army of Israel certainly emboldening And suddenly emboldened, they go and they follow and they wipe out virtually all the Philistines. It was a great day. Talk about a victory. Do you see how David had some great victories? God gave him great victories. Here's another victory. He was given a friend. This is found in 1 Samuel 18. I wish we could go to every passage, but we're going to run out of time as it is. The friend was the prince, the crown prince of Israel, Jonathan. He was the one who had been being groomed to take the place of his father Saul. And he was quite an effective warrior himself, much better than his dad. Read the story in 1 Samuel 14. He and his armor bearer, remember there was only one sword that King had and one sword that Jonathan had. And he and This armor bearer bearer took on enemies and they wiped out 30 
two men, one with a weapon, wiped out 30. So Jonathan was no amateur when it came to being a warrior. So here's Jonathan. And he immediately finds, as the scripture says, his soul is knit to the soul of David. He saw the quality of the Spirit of God in him. He knew the Holy Spirit was working in his life too because the Holy Spirit confided in him, Jonathan, this is your father's successor. And then there began this beautiful relationship between these two young men. And Jonathan looked after David. He had his back when Saul the king went mad and started looking for all kinds of ways to get rid of David and was foiled in large part because of what Jonathan did on the sly to protect his good brother. Well, befriending is a good thing for any of us to do to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be a friend to somebody whom you know Christ is in. A good friend. It could be someone in your peer group. It could be someone who's older. It could be a parent. It could be a brother or a sister in your family of origin. And it could be your children, men. Those of you who have children. To be this kind of friend to your children like Jonathan was. Saul set David as leader over his men of war after the victory. That's another victory, isn't it? Goliath, then he becomes the general, as it were, of the army of Israel. Here, a teenager, late teens probably, maybe early 20s. We don't know exactly, but he was not much more than 20 years old, if that all old at all. There was a victory parade. I was interested in the Nuggets victory parade. And I was so happy for Denver and the out pouring of joy there, if you saw any of it. First time they've ever won the NBA championship. I know many of you are just saying, well, please get on beyond this illustration, if you will. But that parade was nothing compared to this victory parade. Saul and David walking together. And they came to village after village after village. And at each stop, they were met with the same chorus. Women were lining the road and they were sing, singing this song. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Well, there's where the relationship with Saul went sour. Because he was jealous. He was insecure. David really didn't care. He was just watching all this and it was like he was in a dream probably in his own mind. But this began the deterioration and it deteriorated rapidly between him and Saul. Well, those are some of the highlights. There are many more. Before I forget one, let me go ahead and mention this one. After David became the clear king of Israel. It was some years later from this event, probably 10 years later. And by the way, David was a refugee. He was a fugitive. He was being hunted down like a dog by the forces of King Saul. 
And King Saul took 3,000 men at one time to locate where David and his puny group of 400 misfits were holed up in what is called the stronghold. If you've been to the Holy Land or you've seen pictures of the Dead Sea area, you'll notice that in the background to the west, there are these mountains, if you want to call them that, and they're very barren. They're beautiful when the sun shines on them in a certain way. They're beautiful. And they're filled with caves. David and his men were being pursued hotly by the army of Saul. And they knew the army was close. And these caves sometimes were big, as this illustration will tell you. The king went into a cave where David and his 400 men were hiding. And he went in, I'm talking about Saul, to relieve himself. He didn't know anybody else was in there, but the man who was at David's right ear, his right hand or right ear man said, now's the time, David. The Lord has put him in this place and you can have him right now. But you know, David wouldn't do it. Do you know why? Because he listened to what God said. And the Bible says, do not lay your hand on the Lord's anointed. David knew that Saul had been anointed by Samuel. And he knew it would be against God's will for him to take that situation into his own hands. That was a big victory, by the way. The casual observer would say the bigger victory would be do away with him and take over the country. But that's not the way God would have it. And it shows the character of David in his obedience to the Lord. David had some defeats, of course. And among those was he had too many wives. Now, I'm not knocking wives here, okay? He had eight wives. This was against what God had told the nation of Israel in the, what we call the law, the Torah. But David did it anyway. He had 18 sons, at least, by these eight women. And we only know of one female child born, but undoubtedly there were more. He had, David had 10 concubines and he had children by them also. David sired a lot of children. And we'll get back to that if I don't forget it a little later. Saul had committed to whomever would set the Israelites free from the oppression of the Philistines to give his daughter in marriage, his daughter Merab, M-E-R-A-B, to the one who did that. And in effect, he would become, whoever he was, the son-in-law of the king. He would be in the royal family. But when time came for Saul to make good on his promise to David, he went ahead and he gave Merab to another person because second in line among the females in the household of Saul was Michael. And this lady was perhaps a little bit like her dad. She was not like her dad in this. In two places, the scripture says she loved David. 
And she was one among hundreds who would have, not thousands, who would have done whatever they could do to have David as their husband. But she loved him. But she turned against David at some point. And we really don't know all the reason for that. I think it had to do with jealousy, and I can understand that. Ladies, just put yourself in Michael's situation. You got your trophy husband. You got David. He has made you the envy of all other women in the nation. And then all of a sudden, all these women start making fools of themselves. Sorry. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, you'll see it and the way they behaved around David. And she's jealous and it makes her mad at her husband and he's not doing anything to raise the temperature in their hearts as far as anything related to being unfaithful to her. Well, what happens is that God continues to work in David's life. He saves him time and time again. He does not find reconciliation with Saul an easy thing to get. He wants to reconcile with him, and he tries, and Jonathan's helping him along the way. But as soon as Saul's heart changes and softens towards David, all of a sudden he has this uproar within him that makes him, just like his daughter, jealous. Runs in the family, evidently. And David went to different places for refuge. He even went so far as to stoop to go to the king of the Philistines, Achish. And Achish lets him stay there. And then the way that David makes it there in the capital city of Philistia is that he pretends that he's crazy. Crazy, slobbering all over his beard and riding on the door or the gate into the city. And so finally, Achish says, he's not a danger to us. Let him go. That was denigrating for David, for sure. And then David had opportunity to have another wife. And this is, this is my humble opinion, but this is the best of all the women that he was married to. Her name is Abigail. She was married to a fool. His name, Nabal, fit him well. In Hebrew, the word Nabal means fool. How would you like to have a name and it was fool to deal with all your life? But that man died. And then Abigail had, before his having died, had reached out to David because David had sent his men to get provisions for the 400 men who were part of his group because they were not able to have flocks but they protected the flocks and especially Nabal, who was very wealthy, they protected his flocks. And when a delegation from David came to Nabal, who was this wealthy guy and told him, David has sent us because we have associated with him and we've taken care of things. You guys would have had rustlers if it had not been for us. And Nabal, in typical foolish style, said, I had never heard of David. Get out of here. And the result was David got really angry and then Abigail intervened 
And then within a day or two, really a week, Nabal had a stroke and died. And David was no fool. He saw the value of this woman. She was beautiful and wise. And he took her as his wife. And so she became one of his wives and a good one, to say the least. Well, I want to get to the biggest agony for David. He was having agony. He's doing nothing wrong. Look, when you follow the Lord, it doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble. In fact, if you're following the Lord, you're going to have trouble. Jesus says, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation. It's part of our following Christ who learned obedience by what he suffered. This is the God-man and he was not spared any suffering, nor will you if you follow Jesus Christ. We don't have to go looking for trouble. We don't have to try to stir trouble up. We just need to follow Jesus. And the result will be that we're going to run into difficulty along the way as we obey the Lord. So you may have trouble today and it's not of your own making. And it's caused you to doubt God. It's caused you to wonder, does He really love me? Does He really exist? Is the God of the Bible the true God? And the answer is, yes, He does exist. Yes, He loves you. He is the God of the Bible. He is the only true God revealed in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit of God. David the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Samuel 11, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to war, David was on top of his roof late in the afternoon. Now the king's palace was the biggest palace, as you would guess. And so he had a view of all of the surrounding homes and he saw this beautiful woman. He knew who she was. He knew she was one of his right-hand men, Uriah, who was at battle. He was at war where David should have been. And he knew that she was his wife. She was beautiful. And he caved in to his own lust, which had grown to a high degree because of his not sticking with just one wife all along. And so he sent for her. She came. They had intimate relationship. She conceived. David learned from her that she was with child and it was his child. Immediately he's in a quandary. What am I going to do? I've got to get Uriah home from the front where he's waging war and get him to come. I got to have him come and give me a report of how the army is doing and we're winning. And then I'm going to liquor him up pretty good and then send him home. And he will have relations with his wife and then I'll be in the clear. And this will all go away. Uriah comes as the king ordered, but he wouldn't go home. He drank. He got moderately inebriated, but he wouldn't go home. He stayed right there. And when asked by David, why aren't you going to see your wife? You've been gone for months. And the answer was this. I cannot 
have the joy of being with my wife when all of my comrades who are in battle do not have that opportunity. That tells you a lot about Uriah's character. It was better than David's at this point. Well, the baby was born. The baby dies in infancy. It's a great grief for David and a great grief for Bathsheba. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes and he tells a parable. The parable is about a wealthy man who has many sheep and a poor man who has one ewe lamb. And the wealthy man has guests come in unexpectedly. And so he goes to this man and demands the one who owns just one ewe lamb. And it, the ewe lamb was like a pet and he took it away forcibly and fixed it and it was made into some kind of dish to serve this wicked, wealthy man's friends who came. And then David got so mad, he said, that's not right. He thought he was talking about a real person. He said, we're going to have justice in this case. And then all of a sudden, what does Nathan say? You're the man. David knew immediately he had been called out. And what did David do? He, he confessed his sin. He'd been carrying this burden for months, over a year, carrying this burden of sin. And he couldn't get right with God. And he had been accustomed to having daily fellowship with God, and it was all gone. But the Lord forgave him. But there were consequences to sowing to the flesh instead of sowing to the Spirit of God, just like there are in my life. I know that there are things that I'm undergoing now that are not punishment, but they're discipline for something I did over 50 years ago. Over 50 years ago. The Lord uses that in my life, and He will in anyone's life whom He has to say, Whoa! Don't go there anymore. That is our Lord's love. If we love our children, we will discipline them. We will teach them about the Lord. We will teach them to honor the Lord. Another bad thing happens after that. The door just flung wide open for promiscuity in this family. Amnon, number one son, by the way, the heir apparent to David, Amnon got so enmeshed in his feelings for his half-sister Tamar, and he arranged for it with the help of a cousin to get her alone, and he molested her. She begged him. She begged him. She said, don't do this. This is not acceptable. She said, let us go to our father. She was a half-sister, remember? And maybe he will let us get married, but let's don't do it this way because it will disgrace me. He wouldn't listen. And then once he had had that relationship with her, the Bible says he hated her more than he had loved her before. Wow. And David became aware of this, but David didn't confront Amnon. It is ridiculous. Guys, your sons or your daughters go against God and they do something to their siblings 
if you want to use this illustration, I'm not talking about molestation or anything like that, God forbid. But you need to intervene and correct who is wrong. And then there was Absalom. Absalom was son number three in the line. And Absalom was the full brother of Tamar. They had the same mother. Maka was her name. And Absalom told his little sister. He was, he was fuming. And he said, just wait. Just wait. He had the patience to wait two years until he was right. And he into his own hand. And him, really. Because he should have been killed for what he did, according to Jewish law, to his sister. Ridiculous. Well, he fled then, Absalom did, to his grandfather. Then he came back at the invitation of David and the urging of one of David's counselors, Joab, after three years. Then David wouldn't have anything to do with Absalom. He didn't confront Amnon. He didn't talk to Absalom. And look, men, we have to discipline our children. We have to confront them even when they're adults sometimes, when they're out of line as far as their relationship to God and His children is concerned. Absalom led a rebellion. The story is very clearly described for us in the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel actually. And then all of a sudden, he was in a war with his dad. And he is killed. God arranges for his demise and he is killed. And when David got a report from his general as to the outcome of the battle between the forces of Absalom and the forces of David, he said, what about Absalom? And the answer he got was not this directly, but this is the direct answer. He's dead. And then the Bible says that this King David wept this man who had tried to take over the country from his father and had managed to get his father run out on a rail. And his father was a fugitive. Again, David finds himself in such a situation. And then he suffered that. He wept for his son. It could have been avoided, couldn't it, if he had confronted the situation earlier. There's so much more I could say, but I want to finish the next five or six minutes with these conclusions. Here's the one thing I want you to understand. Even great, genuinely great people of God can fail and often do fail miserably in their relationship to God. David's life is a cautionary tale for each man and woman young man and young woman in this room. And today, especially for us as fathers. Have you ever played in your mind what I would call the what if game? What if I had not done that? Or what if I did that instead of what I did? Those kind of things. Listen, this could have been some of the things that ran through David's mind. What if I had been beside Jonathan on Mount Gilboa when he and his father and brothers were killed? And I might could have saved Jonathan and I would have that kind of soul brother 
who is a friend who loves at all times and a friend who cares enough about me to check me when he sees me making a decision that's contrary to God's will. What if I had gone to war that fateful day on my rooftop as all kings should be at war at that time of the year? What if I had delighted in the wife of my youth? That would be Michael. Now she was a rounder, but she loved him. And just because you've got a rounder for a wife, man, doesn't mean you can dump her. You love her. Be a man who takes delight in the woman of your youth. Obey what God says in that way. And here's another thing. He probably said, what if I had submitted to the Holy Spirit that day on the roof and resisted the devil, as the Bible says, and the devil would have fled? Believe the Bible. Test the Word of God. See if what God says is true and giving you the power to not do what the devil would want you to do and ruin your life and perhaps the lives of so many people. I'm going to close now. Wish we had a lot more time. With the passage that was read from Isaiah. Go there, please. Isaiah chapter 48, three verses, beginning with verse 17 of chapter 48 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Goel is the word in Hebrew. He is our Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's not simply our Redeemer. He's also holy, which calls for us to confess our sin and to put it behind us, to turn away from it so that we can enjoy Him as our Redeemer. And then he goes on to say, God speaking now, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. The Father leads us by the Spirit. Jesus gives us the example we follow, and we go where they want us to go. And here's the kicker. If only you had paid attention to my commandments... David knew the commandments of God. He could name one through ten in his sleep. And he knew other things in Scripture. If only you had paid attention to my commands, then your well-being, this is the word shalom in Hebrew, which means the best life has to offer peace. Are you without peace today? Do you have trouble sleeping at night because of unresolved tension between you and the Lord? your well-being would have been like a river. And the word for river here is not the word that was common in that day. Dry, arid country in about 10 months of the year, there was no water flow. They were just gullies, empty. And then the rainy season would come for about a month or six weeks and they would fill up. This is talking about a river that had a source that was so great that it never ran out of water until it emptied in to the Mediterranean Sea. That's the kind of peace is ours if we yield ourselves to the Lord as we ought to. And he goes on to say, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Don't you love the beach? The waves, they're powerful, aren't they? Every so often we hear of a tragedy where some swimmer is caught by the undertow. It seems so innocent and pulled away 
to death. The undertow of sin is strong. But the Lord gives us the strength to overcome our own selfishness, our own sinfulness. Verse 19, your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Don't you, man, here today, if you have a child or children, don't you want those children to bear children who will be used by the Lord as their father is being used, in your case, by the Lord to bring honor and glory to the Lord? and your offspring like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. What a gift. What a promise for us if we have this kind of heart for the Lord. And we are committed to do as the Lord speaks to us and not to stiff arm Him. You know, you're going to get your arm broke off eventually if you keep stiff arming the Lord. So what we need to do is just trust in the Lord and see what God wants to do with us. There's a couplet from a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier that I'm going to close with, and it goes like this. Of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Don't let your life be a might have been life. Give Christ full control of your life now and ongoing in the future. And the result will be marvelous in terms of the impact God has, not just on your generation, but on generations to come. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking into your word and being taught by the Spirit of God today. And we pray, Lord, you'll give us your grace we know, Lord, that you're full of grace. You said you're full of grace and truth. And you don't want to put us in a corner somewhere. You came to set us free. And we know the freedom comes in being men and women who pay attention to what you have to say. And then apply what you tell us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.